consistently what we're seeing is that concretes are overdesigned, they're overdosed with cement. And in most cases, you could probably reduce cement content by 10, 15% without actually having any impact on, on your ability to hit design strengths in your building structure. So, I mean, that alone with cement representing 8% of global carbon, if you reduce that overdesign, would be equivalent to about 1% of global carbon emissions, which is huge. Welcome back to the Future Engineering Club podcast. My name is Jack Lemus, and join me as I speak to some of the brightest minds in the built environment, hearing firsthand their experience building the future of our planet. For this episode, we focus on concrete. Now, although not the sexiest of topics, it's present everywhere we look in our modern day life. And is in fact the most used material in the world. It's present in our roads, bridges, water infrastructure, office buildings. Everywhere you look, concrete is present. And the challenge is, and as you'll soon hear, about 8% of global carbon emissions come from the production of concrete. So as I'm sure you can guess, it's at the top of every list for reinvention with sustainable materials attracting huge amounts of investment at the moment. But overall, this is a mammoth task. The first step, however, is improving our understanding of how it's used. And you guessed it, this is done by data. Increased data insights across our construction projects proves everything. And for a start, it helps us be more accurate with how we use high carbon materials like concrete with an average of 15% excess cement used in concrete. So just off the bat, that's a huge carbon saving available alone. So for this episode, I'm so excited to welcome Raphael Sheps, CEO and co-founder at Converge, who combined AI with sensor technology to tackle this exact challenge. Before I pass over to Raf, if I may ask a favor, if you enjoy this episode, please consider giving it a share on LinkedIn and a follow on Spotify, as it really helps promote our conversation to others who might find it helpful. Now, let's welcome Raf. So I'm Raphael Sheps, the co-founder and CEO at Converge. So I'm a physicist by background, didn't know much about the construction sector, but have always known a lot about sensors and complex systems. Uh, and as a physicist, what we do is we measure the world to try and understand it. My co-founder and I had a fascination for digitizing the physical world. Sensors are getting a lot cheaper than they ever were. Energy consumption is going down. So it's suddenly possible to start measuring entire industries using sensors in, in real time. And so I, I co-founded Converge eight years ago now with the goal of, of digitizing the physical world in construction so that we can build the future more efficiently, safely, and sustainably. Converge is all about deploying sensors onto job sites with a big focus at the moment on concrete, one of the world's most used material. We're putting sensors into concrete, on concrete, directed at concrete, ultimately to try and understand the behavior of that material on a job site so we can help people build more efficiently, safely, and, and sustainably. Brilliant. And just thinking about the last eight years, we've seen such an evolution in the sector. You've been working across a real variety of projects over that eight-year period. And I know that you personally are a really active entrepreneur within the industry and a, and a prominent voice for change. What would you say are the, the most significant evolutionary changes that you've seen in the sector over the last sort of eight or so years? Yeah, it's, it's a really great question. And, and I think you can sort of break up the industry in a few different ways. The most obvious one probably is pre-construction or design delivery and, and kind of asset operation. And there's different innovation at each stage of construction, really. And then another way of thinking about it is 
sort of physical innovations versus digital innovations. I mean, if, if we take that that latter categorization in, in the physical world, I, I think there's probably two big ones. There's the the move to prefabrication, modern methods of construction, which isn't strictly new, right? We had modular construction in the 70s, and it's kind of gone in and out of fashion at different times in the sector. But we've seen a real push in the last several years on modularization, on, on building out kits of parts, trying to move to that sort of fixed product, fixed environment, and, and kind of novel methods of construction themselves. So that's kind of one big category. And, and then going hand in hand with that, I'd say is sort of novel materials. And those could be alternative cements that help you create low carbon concretes, but also entirely different materials or new construction techniques that leverage things like timber. All of those I kind of classify as sort of physical innovations that are actually changing the, the construction methods and the, and the physical materials we use in, on the job site. In the, the digital category, there's then a number of other innovations, which again, you can kind of categorize in terms of pre-construction, construction, or post-construction. The pre-construction and design phase, there's loads of stuff going on, the generative design layer, new ways of designing buildings that help kind of automate, speed up. Uh, but but also come up with new ways of designing structures that we might have not have thought about uh, a while back. So really su- supporting the designer in, in creating new types of structures and buildings that are more sustainable all the way at the design phase. And then at the delivery phase, and that's where we really come in with our technology, is, is sort of sensing sensing an actuation, right? Can you sense the building or the job site during construction? And there are companies like us that embed sensors into concrete, those companies that use cameras, I mean, those are just another type of sensor or LIDAR to scan progress on the job site. At the end of the day, it all comes under reality capture, capturing physical reality, and then using that data and typically applying some sort of machine learning on top of that data to help make better decisions about how you deliver a job site. And, and I see the sort of natural evolution of that eventually to, to sort of be actuation, right? Today, we're actually uh, in the, our insights is being used by, by people to kind of make better decisions. And I think over time, as things like robotics get better, we'll start to kind of be able to kind of automatically actuate in, in different ways on job sites. And there's, there's so much there. And we could pick each topic and have a whole podcast series about each one. It's such a fascinating area, right? And there's, there's so much going on. I want to just pick up on the point around modular because it's an interesting one. And it's a, it's a phrase that has obviously been around for quite a while, as you, as you mentioned. And it's also one that you sort of hear banded about quite a lot. It can mean so many different things depending on the type of asset or project that you're working on. And just recently, we had modular applied to nuclear with micro modular nuclear power plants, which is super exciting. But thinking about the types of capital projects and infrastructure projects that you work on, what does modular mean in that context? And what is the alternate? Yeah, I mean, it is a really good question because there's lots of different types of modular construction, right? And, and in some respects, maybe if you kind of try to break that down into its component parts, then modular tends to imply prefabrication. You're prefabricating the units off the site rather than kind of manufacturing the entire building structure on the job site. And that has lots of advantages. Ultimately, you're moving manufacturing the component into a controlled environment, and you're able to kind of apply manufacturing principles to the production of those of those units. So I guess that's sort of the first sort of principle in my mind, which is like, let's prefabricate these things. But then modular also implies, well, modular, as in you can actually start to bring these things together like Legos in some respects. So you can actually start kind of building a structure off of kind of components that fit together. 
that means thinking about connection points. Quite often that kind of becomes the, it kind of shifts design actually, design principles from thinking about the element to thinking about the connection points, at least in the first instance. And then you've got lots of different types of sort of modular construction. You might have volumetric or panelized sort of construction. So are you putting volumes together, prefabricated volumes or entire rooms or pods, or are you actually building kind of a system of kind of panelized components that fit together more of like the IKEA type construction methods? But yeah, I'd say sort of prefabricated and and kind of fits together like like blocks or Legos is it's probably the, the simplest way of explaining modular. And then there's lots of flavors and variants of it. I mean, one of the big challenges that we've got is when you build a new building structure, everybody wants a unique structure, right? Uh, from a client's perspective, you want your structure to be unique and manufacturing is well suited to sort of you know, building things that are all the same. So the challenge construction's always had is we're, we're building variable product in a variable environment. By going prefabricated, you can move to variable product in a fixed environment. And then maybe taking that one extra step towards a kit apart, there's an opportunity in, in some places, not in all places, to move to fixed product, fixed environments. Although I think we'll always have a bit more complexity in construction because there's always going to be some variability. Can I just sort of pause on that point? Would you mind just explaining that and, and breaking it down slightly, please? Yeah, absolutely. So so we're ultimately talking about both at kind of a, a physical and a digital level, a solution of, of component parts that you can put together to build a structure. Kind of like when you're you're building a car, you're ultimately using standardized components to sort of build, build it all together. So it's a system, uh, and that system would include how you connect different sort of physical things together, different shapes of physical things that come together to ultimately allow you to build up your building structure. But it all relies on the idea that you've got componentization into, into sort of basic building blocks that allow you to build up a building. So we were actually a part of a, a grant consortium that was, was led by Lionel Rook, one of the leading UK contractors, in collaboration with Autodesk, a consortium made up of about eight different companies that was really looking at new ways of building kind of kits of parts to reduce both the sort of time to build, the cost of, of construction, but also the, the sort of carbon uh, costs at the embodied carbon and operational carbon level. And ultimately, this collaborative consortium was really looking at the end-to-end process for, for building kind of structures out of kits of parts. And that meant building a common data environment and thinking about design. And, and actually, there was some really interesting stuff going on between Autodesk and, and Orly around the kind of generative design of components themselves. So if you can actually create a library of kits of parts at the digital level, then you can actually start to create a digital tool that helps you build up different types of structures using that kit of parts. And then going downstream, Langerwolk with a number of its supply chain partners had designed a number of these sort of physical components, which we helped instrument using sensors. Uh, and our sensors were actually looking at three different things, the location of units, and as a result, the amount of time it took to install units, how often they would interact with different pieces of plant or machinery. They were looking at the behavior of the concrete, so the material itself, but also the structural behavior of the units. So looking at things like strain or, or tilt to understand the deformation of the elements. Uh, and if you think about that, the, the first, the location of the unit speaks to productivity. If you start to track and understand where a unit is, then you can actually really optimize the assembly process. And that's one of the biggest challenges with modular construction and modern methods of, of construction generally. You're shifting to prefabrication, but then your biggest challenge on site becomes logistics. When is the unit arriving? Do you have enough crane availability? And, um, and are you going to be able to kind of assemble things at the right time? And I was going to ask about that logistics challenge because 
I imagine that the ability to sort of use this sort of prefabricated type approach depends a lot on the type of project. And you, do you see this being suitable for big mega projects? I think in due course, I mean, I think certainly it's easier to start with smaller, sort of more repetitive projects. And in, in this particular instance, we were focused on kind of education as a sector and residential, where you, know, you do have a lot of repeatability and there was some applicability to healthcare. But I don't think, and I wouldn't want to limit sort of modern methods of construction to, to quote unquote, simple projects. I mean, I've seen them used in large scale projects. And, and actually, sometimes you have to use them in certain kind of complex projects. I guess you'd have to define what you mean by complex projects. You've got complex, large infrastructure, and you might have smaller projects that are complex because of architectural requirements. I've seen a number of projects where you've got essentially requirements for parametric design because you're you're building all sorts of structures that have very unusual shapes, lots of curvature in them. So we were involved, for example, in a project in, in Singapore with, with Gammon Construction where a vessel-like structure was being built for an attraction park. And there were five different vessels that were representing the five different senses, essentially. And those structures were fully prefabricated using essentially modular construction methods. Four of them were made out of steel. One of them was made out of prefabricated concrete. And it was a very intricate design that could have not been achieved otherwise because of the, the curvature of the structure itself. And that was a relatively small in terms of kind of space and volume project. That the, the structure was maybe 20 meters wide. But then I've, I've seen complex facades, again, with parametric design approaches prefabricated and built up that would have not been possible in an in-situ construction situation. So I'm definitely seeing complex structures being built partly using modular. I think there's then that, that kind of next leap, which is, are, are we going to be building large-scale nuclear power plants using, using modular? And there I'd say there's probably aspects of it that you can start to build using modular but it probably will be a while before we build a, a full large-scale nuclear plant using only modular. And I could totally see its application to these complex projects in terms of actually helping folks simplify it a bit and, and break it into stages. I imagine that there are also quite a lot of other benefits for these sort of large projects because naturally with large projects comes a lot of potential inefficiencies. And when there are so many different moving parts, this then carries quite a lot of risk for the project and, and its schedule. But then also then thinking about the materials and the wastage around materials, because maybe they've been designed as a, as a one-off rather than something that is standardized and can be used elsewhere. So then maybe if it's not suitable, it ends up being wasted. There's so much opportunity around material wastage, specifically around concrete. And I know that it's a bit of a controversial topic here at the minute with climate change, et cetera. You see a lot of the figures around sort of 8% of of global emissions being because of cement. What do you think the opportunities are around, around concrete and really what the future of capital projects looks like when it comes to concrete? It's a really good question. So, I mean, about 8% of global carbon is directly attributable to, to concrete and, and cement. Fundamentally, that, that comes from the cement production process. So producing cement requires limestone. You're taking limestone, you're heating it up to really high temperatures. Um, and, and then the, the process of heating it up, so the, in a kiln, is still often coal-powered in, in some cases. Uh, and in all cases, it's, it's just highly energy intensive because you're, you're heating a material up to, to really high temps. But then at the same time, the, the industrial process itself that takes limestone to, to cement releases CO2. It's, broadly speaking, it's calcium carbonate to calcium oxide, and you're left with a bunch of CO2. So, so you've got a ton of CO2 being released in the process itself. 
and then you've got kind of the energy required to, to make it. So it's a huge problem. I mean, concrete's the second most consumed material in the world. Um, we need concrete. At a societal level, I don't see us moving away from concrete. It, it has other positive sort of properties for structures. And, and if you think about construction's social impact, we need mobility, we need infrastructure to generate energy in, we need housing. So all these things are very much sort of needed. And, and we'll start to see sort of a shift to other materials in, in certain segments. You might start seeing timber housing or you're already seeing timber housing. But again, your large scale infrastructure is always going to require materials like concrete. And we're talking about thermoactive buildings and passive buildings and the ability to use sort of materials that can thermally insulate structures. And actually concrete's quite good for that when it comes to influencing the operational carbon of the structure. So we really do need to tackle that embodied carbon problem. And there's a couple of different ways of doing that. All the way upstream, you've got the novel ways of, of making sort of cement. So let's keep using the same kind of cement, but let's either capture the CO2 emitted during the sort of cement production process. So kind of carbon capture and storage at that point, or let's find new ways of powering kilns as well. I mean, you kind of need a combination of both to actually make the, the cement production process as clean as possible. Further downstream, you then have the, can we use less cement? That's actually one of the areas where our technology is kind of playing a big role. We've got sensors that have been deployed into tens of thousands of concrete elements around the world. And consistently what we're seeing is that concretes are overdesigned, they're overdosed with cement. And in most cases, you could probably reduce cement content by 10, 15% without actually having any impact on, on your ability to design or hit design strengths in your, in your building structure. So, I mean, that alone with cement representing 8% of global carbon, if you reduce that overdesign, would be equivalent to about 1% of global carbon emissions, which is huge. In the same sort of light, there's actually replacing cement with alternative binders. Cement is really the, the, the binder that kind of keeps concrete together. And in, there are other materials out there that have cementitious properties. And it's actually pretty common practice these days, for example, to replace uh, cement with GGBS, which is a, itself a byproduct of steel production. That process itself is not the friendliest of processes, but it's a process that we need for producing steel. So from a circularity point of view, um, you, you do end up in a much better carbon position if you can reuse the output of steel production. Same goes for fly ash, which itself is a byproduct of coal combustion. So again, both of those processes are, are pretty bad processes with the environment, but they're processes that are happening. And we've got large stockpiles of, of fly ash. We've got significant GGBS around the world, and we can start to reuse those materials instead of cement. And you're seeing concretes that are replacing cement content even at 90%, or in some cases, even 100%. So you're looking at replacing the entire cement content with, a, with an alternative. Now, those are solutions that help us today. I don't see those as solutions that will sort of solve the problem because they originate from a process that itself is not environmentally friendly. And there's a ceiling on how much GBS or fly ash we produce, which doesn't come close to the amount of cement we consume. And so you're going to have to find alternative binders. And there's a whole field of research around what you call geopolymers, looking at alternative binders or SCMs, as you call them, to start replacing cement. Again, one of the big challenges there is you don't, you don't really know how these concretes are going to behave. Is there brand new chemical formulations and sensors become really helpful because you can actually start validating the behavior of the concrete in situ in different structures. And the more data we have, the more evidence we have that these new materials can be used in, in on job sites. And the idea of actually being a little bit more innovative around the formulation of the concrete and the, the cement is really interesting to me. And we're starting to see examples in the market around carbon captured from carbon capture processes and direct air capture processes then actually being used 
and being sequestered into lime, for example, which is obviously one of the key ingredients, as you mentioned. But I've got this idea in my head around this future of carbon negative concrete and really trying to, okay, maybe we have to use concrete for this building or this water treatment center or whatever else. If we're going to build it, let's at least try and trap as much carbon into that asset as possible. So then it then stays locked in for a while. There's so much opportunity around it. And some of the examples you've given fascinating. So, I mean, it sounds as though a future can't exist without concrete, but it's more of a case of, okay, how are we going to reduce the carbon footprint of it and be as inventive as possible in the design and delivery of it, right? Yeah, 100%. And actually, the, the example you're giving is a really interesting one. There's a number of players and new startups emerging with the ability to inject CO2 into, into fresh concrete and, and essentially capture the concrete in the structure. And ultimately, that means that, yeah, you can, you can trap carbon um, kind of really, really early on. It relies on the availability of, of CO2. And so there's a whole supply chain that needs to be built up around, around carbon capture and storage and then injection. But I mean, there's, there's nearly a circularity to it, right? Because CO2 is sort of emitted at the point of the cement production process. If you can kind of capture that and, and then eventually inject it back into the concrete, to, in some cases, help with the curing process, because we've seen that CO2 can, in, in certain instances, actually help accelerate the curing of concrete, which helps speed up program. You've got the potential to to bend sort of cost and carbon in the sense that I mean cost on our construction side is typically attributed to time, right? But the faster you can build, the 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 better you you off you are, and so you can build faster and build lower carbon at the same time. There's actually another really interesting point there because we, we spent a bit of time talking about modular construction, and I think there's a there's an interesting link there. One of the compromises you're often making when you're switching to say, a GGBS-based concrete, so a lower carbon concrete that uses a, an alternative to cement, is you're actually moving to a concrete that takes longer to reach a certain strength. If you combine that with prefabrication and you actually uh, use these low carbon concretes in prefabrication factories, you can actually control the environment in which those concrete elements are curing. And high GGBS concrete, for example, is known to have a much higher temperature sensitivity. It cures quite fast at higher temperatures, but quite slowly at lower temperatures. But if you can actually start to control the, the environmental conditions under which the elements are being made, you've got a lot more scope for using lower carbon concretes. And so there's an opportunity to bring together uh, sensors that measure the behavior of concrete, novel concrete formulations, and modular. Uh, and we've done that with a, a number of our customers, actually. I mean, Langer Rock used uh, low carbon concrete as part of the PBBS project. We had a project with with Mace um, in sort of uh, a similar sector as well, um, where lower carbon concrete sensors and modular were being used together, and and then we did a project with Kelpray, where we looked at prefabricated piles. So they were actually hollow piles, so actually using less material uh, because they've they've got a hole in them, but also using lower carbon concretes for sort of the, the structure itself, and again validating the behavior of that material using sensors. And and that that does bring up actually there's there's also using less concrete. We've mostly talked about using less cement, which is about optimizing the, the recipe, if you will. The step after that becomes, hey, can we use less concrete? And that'll come by reducing the thicknesses of elements or you know, creating voids in, in foundations, like in, in piles, like we did with the Hyperpile project. And, and that kind of comes with challenging the design. And you're creating a feedback loop between the actual performance of structures, which you can measure using sensors, and the actual design of the structure in the first instance. You mentioned earlier, of actually over-design and overuse of concrete being responsible for a large amount of emissions that is 
entirely avoidable in a way is a really interesting one. And I, I maybe want to just spend a minute or so on that. Would you mind breaking down the steps that, say, the industry go through to actually end up with an over-design and an unnecessary use of concrete? Yeah, and I think so. there's a couple kind of distinctions that are really, really useful. So the, the first is, I guess, the the over-design of concrete in the sense that the, the recipe may have more cement than it needs to have. So in a cubic meter of concrete, that volume can stay fixed, but you can actually reduce the amount of cement you use and, and achieve the kind of the, the properties that you need. So in a, in a building structure, you'll end up with your specification and you'll need to design a concrete that meets a certain spec, call it a, a, a C40. You're going to have to hit 40 MPA over, over 28 days. And then you might need sort of some early strength properties based on the actual delivery of the building project. So you might want to hit um, 40 MPA or 20 MPA after seven days so you can move on with your program. So you're going to kind of take all these constraints into consideration, the early age strength constraints, as well as the design strength for spec. And you're going to design a, a recipe, uh, a recipe for that concrete or a mixed design. And that mixed design is going to have to hit those target constraints by a certain time. And so the, the first sort of opportunity I see is, is you can hit and meet these constraints, but actually reduce the amount of cement you use. And, and that's what sort of I meant by over-design a concrete in, in that it's got excess cement that's not actually required. And you can reduce the excess cement and, and still meet the requirement of the spec. One level up, you can kind of start to challenge the spec itself and say, hey, do I really need the C40 concrete in this element? We, we see that as more challenging, so probably on a second time horizon, mainly because there's lots of building codes and standards around, around the actual design of structures. But certainly, if you could start to gather enough data and evidence to demonstrate that a, a C30 would have done a, an adequate job in that, in that building structure, then you might be able to actually start challenging the design codes. Now, that needs to be balanced against safety, right? We need to be building safe structures. But again, that's where data comes in, because it's all about measuring the actual behavior. And then there's sort of one level up, which is, could you actually change the shape of the of the elements? And, and actually, as part of the PBBS project with, with Lana Roque, Roque had designed some, some really interesting essentially elements as part of its kits of parts that, that use different design features to reduce the overall amount of material used in the element itself. So you're not just reducing the amount of cement you're using, you're also reducing the amount of concrete or the total volume of concrete you need to use. And the point around data is is important because the role of data within this, within this conversation uh, keeps coming up and it's all about actually understanding the performance of the materials that we use and understanding the changing condition and the readiness, which obviously then determines whether our projects can stay on time and on budget. I know that there's so much opportunity in terms of data capture around, say, material readiness. But before we sort of dive into that, I want to ask you is, what about industry readiness? What's your take on how ready the industry is to actually make use of these capabilities? What's been your experience over the last sort of eight or so years? Yeah, I mean, I think there's been a huge amount of change over the last eight years in actually quite a short amount of time. I think if you asked me five years ago, I would, I would have said very few industry stakeholders were ready to start leveraging data to make better decisions. There's been a, a big shift in the last couple of years, really a confluence of a, a couple of trends. The investment in sort of digitization across across the board in the sector. In some respects, actually, COVID was a bit of a forcing function as well. We needed new ways of building that didn't require necessarily sending people to site, but they required access to data remotely. You can kind of think of a lot of these reality capture solutions as, as a Zoom equivalent for construction. You suddenly access data on the job site, but remotely from anywhere. And, and there's been the emergence of a number of different technologies that use and leverage sensors or cameras to characterize the job site. 
those significant data sets that already exist existed in silos at the sort of design and construction phase within construction companies. And a number of the larger construction groups have now engaged chief data officers or chief data architects, CDOs that are actually starting to think about how do they manage their data? How do they build the right sort of data lakes so that they can they can query that data? So yeah, I think my answer five years ago would have been very different to today. I, I think today you've got a real drive in the industry to to want to sort of leverage data to make better decisions, whereas five years ago there, there really wasn't. It's been great to actually see that uh, that transformation and, and play a, a role in it as well. There's still a lot of challenges though. There's a massive standardization issue. If you look at example, construction schedules and BIM models and sensor data. None of them are coded in the same way. So ultimately, it's hard to kind of create linkages between them. And you've got lots of large data sets that are still relatively disparate. So we've got kind of challenges around standardization, challenges about kind of centralization, but they're kind of being actively worked on. It's a really interesting one. And the evolution of your value proposition, I, I'm sure, has has changed and evolved as as with the industry change, as well as then the semiconductor and chip capabilities that have evolving day by day. You've given a few examples of some of these data driven uh, opportunities in terms of actually understanding concrete readiness today, as well as then say optimizing mixes, as well as in supporting say precast logistics, etc. Where do you think the industry is heading to in, let's say we fast forward sort of 10, 15, 20 years down the line, we, we're aware of all of the big mega projects that are planned, but what do you think the future looks like in terms of concrete and our interaction and understanding of concrete within the world of capital delivery? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. I'd like to, I guess, imagine a world where all the, all the data modes are connected, if you will, or all the, all the data pools. Because the other aspect of this that also needs to be considered is, is sort of the, the structural industry piece, right? I, the contractor is not the single sort of stakeholder. You've got the client, the contractor, the structural engineer, the material supplier, the testing lab. And, and each one of those today has kind of a, a pool of data and will have to kind of provide both physical materials or, or digital information to each other. So I, I guess in, in 10 years, I'd like to see all that connected because that that's probably the way to achieve the productivity and sustainability that we've got. The, the ready mixer has a bunch of information that would be really valuable to the contractor and, and their ability to actually reduce their, their carbon emissions and their embodied carbon. And there's some of that going on, right? People producing EPDs, so you can actually fully understand the, the embodied carbon of a mix. But until recently, you had one EPD for all concrete types. And that's starting to change. And there's now a lot more resolution in, in environmental product declarations which allow you to understand the carbon footprint of different concretes. But again, that, that data is kind of siloed. And generally, I mean, data is the raw material, right? It's not the, the end product. And so I think we, we need to also move to the point where the industry feels comfortable sharing data with each other because the inherent values in what you do with that data is in the insight that you're able to generate off of it. And I imagine there's also then an opportunity to improve our as-built models and actually understanding of what has been put in place and the, the, the ingredients that have gone into that concrete mix. So then maybe 50 years down the line, maybe if the building's being taken down, we can then have a much better understanding of the materials that could potentially be captured and used in a circular economy fashion. Yeah, hundred percent. Actually, maybe one, like a really nice way of putting it is, is you've got 
you've got pre-construction and construction operation. And really in 10 years, you want to have created a feedback loop across each one of those. You want the actual data gathered during construction to feed into the design phase so that you're designing more constructible buildings. But you then also want to gather data about the, the operation of a building structure, both structural or thermal, to feed back into the design so you're building more maintainable structures or more energy efficient buildings. And that's kind of a, one of the data feedback loops that I think the industry needs to sort of strive for. The other way is is the, the stakeholder map, right? Where you've got several different stakeholders, well, hundreds of stakeholders in some cases involved in, in delivering the job site. And so how do you actually start connecting the data pools that each one of those stakeholders has so that we can deliver on an integrated basis? Absolutely. And there's just so much opportunity from the sustainable materials that go into the buildings, as well as then actually what we do with the materials when maybe the building needs to come down or we need to adapt and change it. And I guess it all comes down to the ability to capture data as well as then interact and pull the insights from that data. There's so much opportunity and I'm sure that technology will continually evolve to try to bring people together to collaborate around it. It's a really interesting one. It kind of brings together, it brings together sensors, it brings together digital technologies and modular actually, because reusability of components is, is a topic that's, that's talked about every once in a while. And, and the big challenge in reusing construction components tends to be the, the, the birth certificate of that component or the, the passport, if you will, that has all the information isn't always accessible. So if in 40 years, you might want to reuse a, an element, how do you make sure you've got all the data you need on that element to be able to safely say, yes, I can reuse that element, but it, it would be a huge win for the industry if we could get, if we could get there. Uh, we actually did a really interesting project with Kelpray that I was referencing earlier. It was called the, the Hyperpile, a hollow impression-based precast energy generating reusable pile. And not only was that element sort of hollow prefabbed, but it was also intended to be reusable. One of the big problems that we've got with foundations is take London. A lot of London's had concrete foundations um, in, in the ground and there's more and more concrete in the ground. But then when you come to uh, demolish a structure and build a new one, well, it's really hard to remove those, those elements. And so you end up with new piles being built, but more and more concrete in the ground, it's hard to build. So if you can actually find ways of reusing the foundations for structures, that could be quite transformational as well. And that was what that project was focused on. And I've seen similar initiatives in Scandinavia, for example, looking at reusability of prefabricated elements. And you can only really achieve that if you bring all of those technologies together, the kind of modern methods of construction and, and modular elements, the material science required to understand the longevity of these materials, but then also the, the data and, and digital tools that help you understand the behavior of those, of those materials in the long run. Points around updating commercial buildings, I know came up during lockdown, during COVID, when a lot of commercial real estate developers that had invested significant amounts of money to develop large, massive offices, but then realized, and actually we will move in towards a work from home hybrid type approach. They then quickly then looked at their building designs to see how they could tweak it and update it, then reflect the new changes in working style. And as part of that, it then all comes down to, okay, what materials are on site? How can we be clever around reusing what we've already done, but then tweak it to then meet the future needs of, of the workforce? Yeah, yeah, it's a, it's a really interesting point, isn't it? Because we, we're going to have to start thinking about the, the future use cases for structures and certainly our needs at a societal level are evolving. So we're going to have to repurpose different assets and different buildings in, in new ways and finding kind of ways of, I mean, back to your point about car carbon negative buildings, you, you've had people build kind of sky garden type situations or 
all sorts of structures where you're you're actually planting trees on top of buildings to try and kind of offset some of the carbon emitted by that structure itself. Or you could also look at extending buildings. I mean, that, that would cost a lot less from a carbon perspective than building an entirely new building from scratch. So yeah, I think there's a, there's a really interesting kind of new field that's going to kind of emerge around new, new ways of retrofitting structures. Raf, one last question to finish. What have you been your biggest learnings across your, your journey so far? That's a, there's, there's a lot of them. <laughs> I think when you, when you build a startup in a sector, I mean, I, I was new to construction when we first, when Gideon and I first co-founded the business, there's a lot of sort of industry learnings and there's a lot of sort of startup learnings. I think at the industry level, there's sort of a really interesting one, which is that when, when you're approaching a sector, we, the first approach we took was maybe a bit, a bit simplistic. We said, well, all, all concrete is concrete, right? And we can build a product that, that'll cater to anybody building using concrete. Uh, and then the more you learn about the industry, the more you start to realize that uh, construction is actually really complex. And the ways in which concrete is used varies tremendously from project to project, from one construction method to another. Whether you're building a tower with post-tension slabs or underpinnings for a railway structure, the, the techniques used are going to be different. The formulations of concrete are going to be different. We had to taxonomize the market, actually, and, and there's no easy way of doing that. There's lots of different ways of slicing up the industry, but there's lots of dimensions to that, whether it's the construction methodology, the type of material, type of element, the type of project, the sector that you're building for. And so I think to, to build successful products in construction, what we learned was that we, we had to taxonomize the industry into all these different pockets. Um, and then we had to start thinking about which pockets share kind of common pain points, ultimately. And how do we make sure that we build a product that, that solves kind of those core pain points for those subsegments? And then once you've hit a, a, a core number of subsegments, then you can actually start building outwards and, and essentially expand your addressable market by solving pain points for, for more parts of the, the construction taxonomy, if you will. So that, that was like a, a really interesting one at the, at the product level. And I think for anybody kind of wanting to launch into construction tech is, is kind of a, a really useful one. It's one I, I wish that I would have known about when we'd gotten started. It, it would have helped answer a lot of, sort of confused questions about why our products was being why our products were being used in one way in one part of the industry, but in a very different way in another part of the, the sector. You've been listening to the Future Engineering Club podcast. Thanks so much for joining me. I really hope you enjoyed it. Keep an eye out for next week's episode. And in the meantime, give me a shout on LinkedIn and let me know what you thought. Thanks and goodbye.